Hello, and welcome to the Stories About My Ass podcast, Field Notes in Film, Glamping, and Miniature Donkey Ownership. I am your host, Brandon Dickerson, and if you have been on the search for discussions of film, filmmaking, boutique retreats, glamour camping, and smallish farm animals, you have discovered the podcast of your dreams. Today on our show, I am beyond enthusiastic about my conversation with film composer extraordinaire B.C. Smith. I have had the honor of working with B.C. on two of my films, Victor, as well as my new film, Amanda and Jack Go Glamping, which if you've been listening to the podcast, you've heard many times that we have been in theaters and are now on demand anywhere that you like to rent your movies, Amazon, iTunes, Voodoo, on your PlayStation, on your DirecTV. I hope you enjoy it, and I know you're going to enjoy my conversation with B.C. Yeah, he was producing a band that I was in, and uh, this this was sort of pre-grunge and then I left that band and I just wanted to start scoring the picture so um, he gave me a room at uh, London Bridge which is the studio where all those bands recorded and uh, and, and he gave me this this room in exchange for playing on some of his records and stuff that he was producing at the time you know that sort of scoring the picture recording the picture that seemed like a good extra money maker for the studio Before we get into my interview, I always like to start off our show with a story. I was never sure if my personal journey at Green Acres was a comedy or a tragedy, but I did come to learn that it all depended on where I pointed my lens. And there were seasons early on where I would point my lens towards my own private pity party with a shallow focus. And maybe the best example of this had to do with plumbing. There were many joys that came with downsizing radically and living with my family in two small trailers on land outside of Austin that we call Green Acres, but being in charge of all things that could and did go wrong was not my favorite part of the journey. When we moved to the land full-time, it became quickly apparent that the plumbing was installed with the care and thoughtfulness of a three-year-old playing with Lincoln Logs in one hand and a Godzilla in the other. I quickly learned that a bubbling up of water from the land did not mean that we had discovered a natural hot springs on our land, but that someone had driven over a PVC pipe that popped underneath the ground. Now it's worth noting that when we discovered this, we'd have to run all the way down the road and clear off any debris that had covered the gauge, then find the tool which mysteriously would move every time I would go down there, and you would turn the water off and then run all the way back up and begin the wonderful process of digging into the mud to get all the water and mud away to find out where the break is and determine what size was needed And then if it was before 9 p.m., I could drive 20 minutes into town to find the kind of couplings that I would need based on the size that I had determined and then drive all the way back so that I could balance a YouTube video on my phone on one knee to try and repair the PVC with my two free hands. In the beginning, this happened as often as once a week, which I thought was fantastic. I just thought it was a real kick in the pants. And maybe about three weeks in, I discovered the largest gush that we'd ever seen right next to the skate ramp, ironically caused by a road repair truck crushing the PVC pipe underneath the ground. So I huff and puff down the road and turn off the water and make my way back up 
and ask my children to grab a shovel and a bucket and join me in the wonderful task of digging in the mud. They put on their rain boots and they dig and bale and dig and bale and help me get all the way down through the muck and the mire to reveal the PVC pipe, which is the wrong size for the couplings that I have. So now I get to trek 20 minutes into town to find the correct coupling and come back just in time to try three times and fail to fix the broken pipe, causing the kids to get more muddy and dig further as it was getting dark. The job remained incomplete when we stopped for dinner. Now, in our little Spartan, we always would like to go around the table and ask everyone their high, their low, and their unexpected to talk about their day. Now, before I could share my broken pipe low for the day, my daughter wanted to go first and said, my high for the day was getting to play in the mud with my dad and my brother. Same event, two very different perspectives. I took a deep breath and did my best to adjust my lens. As the kids were getting ready for bed and unable to brush their teeth with the water still off, I was going for round three of rookie water line repair and my wife yelled out the door, May Lee says this is good. And I called back from my mud of frustration and said, what? How? May Lee says now we can understand what it's like for those around the world who don't have water. Standing there in the mud in my rain boots, I'm reminded by my daughter that although we cannot change our circumstances, we can certainly change the way we view our circumstances. Thank you, Maylee. I love those surprise moments of a shift in perspective. And speaking of fresh perspectives, let's dive right into my conversation with film composer B.C. Smith. My guest today has worked on a wide variety of films over many years, from Smoke Signals to Mod Squad to Outsourced, and probably most popular, Victor and Amanda and Jack Go Glamping. Yes. <laughs> so those are, for anybody tuning in, Victor and Amanda and Jack are, are both films that I had the opportunity to work with you on. So BC Smith, welcome to the Stories About My Ass podcast. Cool. Thank you. <laughs> we always start off going way back and asking whoever we're talking with about how they started out. What was the very first moment where you said, I want to be a film composer? Uh, you know, I've always wanted to be a film composer since I was a little kid. So I was probably 10 or so. And and uh, I don't know. And I, I just decided that's what I wanted to do. I came from... Uh, uh, my father was a musician, but I grew up in a little town. And so there wasn't, it wasn't like I knew any film composers or knew that, you know, that there was a way to do that. But, but ever since I was a little kid, that was all I wanted to do. And then uh, I kind of went, went through, you know, grew up playing in bands and did that, you know, when I was, uh, when I was a kid and went to college and, and uh, I still had to kind of create my own path to sort of become a film composer because there wasn't really a set curriculum or a way to sort of do that for a kid growing up in like the Tri-Cities or outside of Seattle. And eventually I moved to Seattle and, and that's when kind of things started to happen for me. And in Seattle, not to get us off topic, but I've actually never talked to you about the fact that you worked with, is his name Rick Parashar? How do you say his name? Rick Parashar, yeah. Parashar. 
Yeah. So yeah. tell me about that. Were you hanging out with him when all of that kind of Seattle music was happening? Yeah, he um he was producing a band that I was in, and uh, this is this was sort of pre grunge, and then I left that band, and I just wanted to start scoring the picture. So um he gave me a room at uh, London Bridge, which is the studio where all those bands recorded, and uh, and and he gave me this this room in exchange for playing on some of his the records and stuff that he was producing. Sort of at the time, that was sort of a you know, that sort of scoring to picture, recording to picture, that seemed like a, a good extra money maker for the studio. And, and I was just starting to want to do that. And so we were friends and they were like, you can do that and we'll give you a space to do that. So I really owe Rick and his brother Raj just kind of everything uh, for kind of getting me started on that path. And then um, I got to sort of be there. A lot of those bands were recording there and stuff. And by those bands, you mean like, Pearl Jam was recording the 10 album. Yeah, Pearl Jam was recording 10. Alice was recording Facelift. Um, in fact, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see who else. Um, Temple of the Dog was out there, Screaming Trees, all those bands, basically. It's incredible. <laughs> That's Yeah, it was, it was an amazing place to be. And, you know, it was just really the creative sort of energy that was going on out there at the time was was really amazing. I've tried to describe, in, in fact, I've asked Mason, my son, who you've met, I said, who's the band or what music is it that just kind of comes and changes everything? And I was trying to describe to him what happened when that whole grunge thing happened. It's like music was one thing and then it was another. And he didn't have sort of a modern take on it, that there was some sort of music in his, and he's 17, so there's still time, but that was an incredible season in music. Yeah, it was neat. I mean, there was just a lot of creativity out there about that time. And, you know, it rains a lot in Seattle. It's dark and kind of gloomy. And so these guys are tuning their guitars down and slowing everything way down. And, and, um, and, uh, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was really their own kind of thing that they were going for. You know, there was, I don't think that they were patterning it after, you know, after any other bands, they were just kind of doing their own thing. So it was fun to watch it all blow up. Yeah. It, was, it was, you know, amazing for me to see, 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 it, see it kind of go down. You know, Rick was, you know, a, a very dear, very dear friend of mine. When you were young, was, was there a film or how, how did you realize that, you know, somebody is behind the composing and then also that that comes, you know, in concert with the, the director and, and with the production? I think I, you know, I saw Star Wars and that made a big impact on me. And I saw, and there was a film called uh, Wizards by Ralph Bakshi, this anime, anime oh, yeah. film. Yeah. And I saw that and, and kind of the two of them probably in, close together even. And, and um, I was like, that's what I want to do. I was just really sort of moved by the, the marriage of music and image. And, um, you know, and then I was playing in bands and it just wasn't doing it for me. I was in good bands. And, and when I moved to Seattle, I, you know, I worked with really cool people, but I just didn't do it for me. I just, you know, I just wanted to score to picture, you know, my friends were songwriters and I was like, I got nothing to say, but you know, somebody picks up a chainsaw and chases somebody, you know, I know what that sounds like. I know that that, that, you know, I can do that music or if, you know, or whatever the sort of problem or, or situation is in the film, that was the sort of the thing that, that inspired me. And I just really longed to, to do my, uh, to exercise my creativity sort of that way. That makes a lot of sense having worked with you twice and hopefully continue to get to work together because I feel that 
people that want to do like I love even in commercials, I would always want to work with a cinematographer that it was a cinematographer for life, not that they were doing cinematography as a road to directing or even assistant directors that just loved being assistant directors. And it's interesting that you say you always wanted to score to picture because you have this incredible, as a director, it's amazing that you really are doing that. You are looking at the narrative and you're writing to picture. You're not a frustrated musician that's on a side gig. It's obvious in working with you that this is your main passion. Yeah, I really love it. It's just, I love the problem solving aspect of it. The, the film is a big jigsaw puzzle for me. And so that sort of, you know, and, and it comes after, you know, having done a lot of, a lot of films now, but, but, um, but still even early on, it was just sort of, you know, uh, now I can kind of go in and watch a movie and, and really be able to articulate the, the reason I think the music you know, should be what it is or options for the music to be what it is, you know, because you're like, okay, the reason they're going to cry in the third act is because, you know, we, we laid these little breadcrumbs throughout the first and second act and, and, um, or the reason they're going to be scared or whatever sort of, you know, the, the narrative is, I, I like that sort of puzzle piece aspect of it. And, and uh, the, the challenge of, of, of doing it, I, I feel like it's a, it's an evolving art form. So, you know, a, a, a film that's scored today isn't the way that it would have been scored, you know, five years ago or 10 years ago, or even two years ago, probably. It's just this evolving art form as people kind of are hungry for new sounds and sensibilities change. So that kind of problem solving is, is the thing that I like the most. And, you know, from working together, it doesn't matter to me, you know, if I nail it on the first, first time I write the cue, or if I have to write 50 revisions of it, I just like that moving forward and trying to, trying to figure out what it's, what it's supposed to be, you know? Yeah. I love doing that. And I love that you are willing. I love, (laughs) you'll send me cues and you'll always remind me that you're not precious about it. You're like, I want the notes. Let's dig down and let's, let's find the right score for the right scene. And then it's also a treat as a director that you're not only looking at that scene, but you're looking at the whole film and the way that that scene fits in with the scenes around it and then the way it pays off and setups and payoffs for music. And I love it. Uh, me too. That's just my joy. You know, I, I think, I mean, it's kind of fun to go to the premieres and stuff like that, but I really don't. I just like being in the studio just <laughs> writing and then, and then being able to go like, like bring in musicians and have them play on it or, you know, work with different ensembles or, you know, or, or create new sounds or whatever. It's just a, that whole sort of, you know, I'm a, I'm, I'm a shoe cobbler, you know, I mean, that's my, yeah. that's my gig, you know? Yeah. Tell me how you describe, cause I, I find that people ask me all the time to describe what each person on the set does. And I feel that Composing is one. Even recently, uh, someone was talking about how much they loved the composition, the score within the film, and they were asking for specifics of how that's done. What's your simplified version of what a composer does? I just say, you know, I write the under uh, the underscore for films, you know, and I, and you know, a lot of people don't get it. They think I write the songs, or yeah. I pick, or I pick the songs, or that kind of thing. So finally, I go back to that sort of chainsaw analogy. You know, that like I'm like, okay, if somebody picks up a chainsaw and you hear dun 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 dun, dun that's me. I'm the guy that writes that, and then, then they're like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. I've had several people notice the nod to the horror films that you did in Amanda and Jack. So if somebody hasn't seen it, uh, David Arquette is the the star with Amy Acker 
and he is finding himself in the middle of land at this glamping retreat and he's not very happy about it and a bit scared and there's a scene where uh the door he's asleep in an rv and he hears something and he grabs a flashlight and an electric tennis racket and goes down the hall and tell me about how you came up because it was your original idea of what to do on the score there I just kind of figured with all the, you know, in just trying to get inside Jack's head, you know, as he's describing his fears, you know, as he's laying there in bed, that those sort of 80s sounds of, of you know, of, you know, Halloween or any of those those older movies, they um, uh, that's what that's what fear sounds like to him. That's his sort of his reference, you know. And so um, um, I think in order to sort of dig into Jack's subtext sort of you know, musically and reinforce that. That's, that was the sort of well we needed to go to for that. Oh, I bet there's a prison somewhere nearby. You had to say that. <laughs> Did you hear that? And you and a few people have noted the jack, 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 the, <laughs> the very subtle, especially when you get to see it in a theater and the sound is so good. I've had a few people note that related to when he's talking specifically about some horror movies. And then, of course, some people get a sort of layered laugh about it because, of course, David was in the Scream films. So yeah. it kind of becomes like several references within the, the 80s nod. It was fun, you know, and I think, I think it, it, I mean, for me, it was a fun movie to score and it was a, it's a fun movie to watch. And so I think those, those kind of, that little nod to the nostalgia, I mean, you have that happening throughout the, the film and the dialogue anyway. So it sort of made sense to, you know, to, to do that a little bit with the music where we could. You know, something in hindsight that is very interesting is that we were in the middle of composition editorial and we're having this discussion about an 80s nod and kind of a feel that feels modern but still feels nostalgic because if people haven't seen the film there's songs from the cure and tears for fears and new order and uh, missing persons and there's it it represents jack's thoughts of when he grew up and when he wanted to be a writer. And so we were having these discussions about an original nod to eighties music and then stranger things came out. Oh yeah. Do you remember that conversation? Yeah. It was like, yeah, we, were, we were, those, those we weren't the only ones again. doing yeah. it. That was really interesting because it, it felt like we were having these conversations on our own. And then all of a sudden there was a lot of conversations about eighties scores. Yeah, yeah, it's funny how that that, that kind of happened. Uh, I guess we're we're definitely you know in the collective conscious that way, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And for the record, we were already already rocking it. 
<laughs> the Forest Ranger. That's true. It's important so, to note. Tell me the difference between your approach to a film like Victor, which is you know, Victor is a true story, 1962 Puerto Rican migrant that moves to Brooklyn, gets involved in gangs, drugs, redemptive story of him overcoming that, but a true story and, you know, a period film. Tell me the, the unique challenges in, in composing a, a period film. Uh, well, for Victor, I mean, I, the, the, the period aspect I, I felt was kind of, um, I think we talked about this too, is it was covered a lot by the, by the source music, you know? And so the, so you, you were pulling from songs from that era. And so that, that kept putting everybody in that time frame. So I think we were kind of focused more on getting into Victor's head and his, his demons and his, his struggles. And so that was sort of, uh, what I was thinking compositionally there. And then also the, there's a bit of a nod to his, his Puerto Rican uh, heritage too, with using like the quattro and some instruments like that, but also trying to use them in, un, uh, in unexpected ways, you know, tell me more about instrumentations because instrumentation, did I say plural? <laughs> tell me more, <laughs> tell me more about instrumentation. You always have a, a playful and original approach. You're always bringing me ideas of different instruments that you want to use. Tell me where that comes from. And then maybe a few that you even used on both of those films. Um, I think for me, it always starts with the, the sound palette, you know, and, and what, what are the tools that, that, um, uh, that should go into creating the score. And um, I'm not a fan of like, of like all the sound libraries and stuff that they have now, because I, I just feel like it's, it's just, uh, I don't know. It's uh, it's unoriginal. You know, I can almost like watch television or watch films and call out, you know, patch numbers as to what, what composers are using, you know, it's that's, Oh, they're using that, that synthesizer patch number 22, you know, and, and, um, I don't like to work that way. So um, I like to kind of try and create everything from uh, from scratch if I can, as, as much as I can. And and also just use, uh, even use instruments in unexpected ways. And so um, for Victor, like we use the, the quattro, but I, I don't play the quattro. <laughs> it's actually a very difficult uh, instrument to play. Yeah. But, you know, I went out and got one. I was like, this is just such a cool sound and stuff. And I don't know, like for that, there was a, you know, a couple little motifs that we were playing with, you know, that, that I think like for the, you know, one of the early scenes that, that we scored was, um, the, the malt shop, you know, with the shotgun right, right. and stuff. And I just like the idea of like these, these sort of rhythms bumping up against each other. Whereas, you know, in more traditional music, you, you have everything locked in sync, but I was, I was taking these, you know, these, these little motifs and, and multi-tracking them. I brought in a great player that could play and, and, um, you know, and, and making everything bump up against each other to sort of create this, this, this weird tension. And so, you know, I guess I, I think more in terms of sound, even rather than instruments, I'm like, how can I get that sound in my head? And, you know, for like Victor, it was like, Oh, you know, we want that subtle sort of nod to, to Puerto Rico, but didn't want to have it too on the nose. So, using like like that that instrument in kind of an unexpected way kind of does that without having it be like oh you know they're using the quattro you know <laughs> right oh hey west side story yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> tell me about the saw one of my favorite parts of your composition for amanda and jacko glamping is the saw what do you even call it is it just 
a saw, a stand-up saw? That's a musical saw. It's actually a lumberjack saw, you know, the, the kind of two-person saw. And um, that was, an, you know, another thing, too, that we could, you know, we could have, like, used a sample or something like that. But, but um, uh, I think early on, we, we wanted some of those rustic kind of sounds woven into it. Because I, I remember also we wanted, um, you know, Green Acres to be this special place. And mm-hmm. even though Jack wasn't having a good time there, it still had this, this magic to it, you know. And, and which I think helps because you want to root for Jack the whole time, too. So, you know, we didn't want to have that music be you know, dark and, and dingy to match his mood, you know? Um, yeah. We tried to not go on the nose on that. I love that we approached it from themes, character themes, and then we treated green acres as its own character. Yeah. So uh, I think having like, it be like this, this modern place and used a lot of interesting uh, you know, textures to, to sort of, you know, and, and production techniques to make the guitars sound like cool. And, and, and sorry, I'm digressing, had, had a wonderful guitar player play on it. Um, uh, you know, uh, Zach Ray, he plays with, um, Death Cab for Cutie. Yeah. So incredible. Yeah. He's all over the score. He played, he played on it. And so that, that has like a modern feel, but then also like you and I talked about wanting some of those old school, like, like the saw and the whistling and that kind of stuff and some rustic kind of stuff. So, um, I just, um, was looking, you know, LA is so great because, you know, there's a lot of, you know, if you want a kazoo player at three o'clock in the morning, you know, you can get one, you know, or, <laughs> or, or, or somebody that plays the spoons or anything, right. you know, so musical saw there are guys who used to do it. But I was in my research to sort of figure out who I wanted to have play on it. I came across this video on YouTube of this, uh, uh, Natalia Peruz, and she she calls herself the Saw Lady, and it's her just killing it on a musical Saw in the subway in New York. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah. I remember when you sent me that, and I was just oh, it's incredible. It, she's so into it too. I mean, she's just got this yeah. big smile on her face, and she's just killing it. And 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 it's like that kind of because you know you it's it's not an easy instrument to play it, and it's a not a natural kind of sound, and so. I didn't want it to sound like math and have you know somebody struggling to play play the melodies and stuff. And so I was like, she's she's got to be the one that plays on it and stuff. So um, called her and she was super into it and sent her the music and she went into a studio in New York and and just banged it out. It's so good. And she has been uh, a champion for the film. I've I've seen her. She's let her fan base know on YouTube and on Twitter and such that the film is out and she said, you know, you can hear my musical saw work in the film. So oh, that's, that's great. great. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's great to work with people like that and also work with pros too. in the, in the sense that, um, you know, with the, with our tight production timeline too, it just, there's no, there's no real room for mistakes. I mean, I always have like a backup plan and some other things going, if things aren't going to, you know, just cause you kind of have to operate that way. But, but, you know, it was like, we were in mixing that tune and it was like, okay, I need, I need the song music now and, uh, and upload it and dropped it in and it was good to go. You know, that is the way that technology has changed your job. I'm sure. What year did you start? When was smoke signals? Smoke signals was, I think, uh, 98. Yeah. That, so, that was my first film. Yeah. So early, it, it just must've changed. I don't think in 98, you could have quickly reached out to a YouTube musical saw person and, and laid them into your score. No, not at all. In fact, uh, you know, things, things have changed a lot. Uh, you know, I can, 
yeah, <laughs> I mean, that, that was even pre being able to send stuff over the internet and stuff. So I, I used to be I, living in Seattle. I actually was on a first name basis with this company that I would be, I would record all night long at the studio in X for whatever film I was, was on. And they would come to the studio at about four in the morning and pick up the tapes and, um, fly them down to LA for the, for the dub. And so that, wow. the deadlines were that tight anyway. So it was, it would be like, you know, they'd be, you'd be mixing real one, but the, the music would arrive on, on, on tapes at, um, uh, you know, the morning of the, of the mix, you know, and, and I'd rely on a guy to get on airplane and fly down. <laughs> Isn't that crazy to think that just not that long ago, the way that we would do thing is someone physically would fly somewhere. And now it's just a fast, internet connection and it's yeah. a matter of literally minutes at times audio files yeah. aren't aren't terribly huge so yeah. i don't want to digress too too much but you but uh, uh the the best example of that it was um over 9 11 i was recording uh uh peyote singers and um, wow and, what and, peyote singers where are they um these guys named uh primo and mike they're the they're peyote singers and they they um it was for this i can't I, I can't think. I was for a movie called Skins, another Chris Air movie, mm. and just really great musicians and so so good at what they do. But you know, um, recording it was complicated. And and the day that that everything happened, they were supposed to get on a plane and fly down, fly to Seattle, and and, and play on the score. Mm. And on nine eleven, yeah. And so getting them to Seattle like in the days after is like oh, the hardest things I've ever had to do. Oh my gosh. Cause it kept getting turned away. It was like, you know, they'd call me and they'd be like, you know, we were about to get on the plane and they looked in our bags and we had like, you know, deer antlers and stuff. <laughs> they were like, no way you're not getting on the plane. So yeah, they're like, um, but we're peyote singers. Yeah. Oh yeah. Deer antlers probably were not on the safe fly list yeah. yet at that point. So things are a lot easier now. Now I can work with people all over the all over the world, which is really great. Yeah, it's incredible. We will continue my conversation with BC Smith in a moment, but first, it's time for the Mason Movie Minute or two, the time on our show where we check in with my 17-year-old son about a film that he thinks we all need to see. Welcome to the Mason Movie Minute, coming to you live from Mason's bedroom, where I am currently looking at both a Polaroid SX-70 and a pinhole camera given to you by Matt Slocum, actually. Oh, yeah. Very cool. Welcome, Mason, to your program. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. So I wanted to ask you what you thought about a film that I saw and you saw separately that was one of my favorite films of the year. Very different, not new wave anything but it was a sundance film called the big sick called it yeah did you know i was gonna ask that? i knew it how did you know that because i was thinking of movies that you saw and then i saw separately and that was the first one i thought of very and nice. it came out this year very nice so the big sick is a film neither of us can pronounce his name kamel how do you say it just call him kamel kamel i don't even know if we're saying that right in, That's how they say it in the movie. Kamel? Yeah. He was on Silicon Valley. Okay. Kamel. <laughs> and it is a true story that he and his wife wrote together. Yes. And Zoe Kazan, who's great in the film. Yes. Uh, not only that, Holly Hunter, right? Yeah. She's in it. She's in it from Raising Arizona fame. Mm -hmm. Another really good film. Mm -hmm. That's a good one. So good. 
And also, Everybody Loves Raymond. Oh, yeah. He's in it as well. So I loved that film, and I want to hear what you think of that film. I think The Big Sick is a great movie. I really liked it. Yeah, I think it was just a really good, like, honest, romantic comedy. And I think it was really cool that it was a true story. Like, that just made it, I don't know, like 10 times better. Because it was like a really awesome and like, you know, like real feeling story and movie. And then like, you kind of think like, oh, but you know, it was made up. Like, they just wrote that to feel real, but it wasn't real. But then it was real. And I was like, super cool. Yeah. It is a true story. It is now available I believe you Everywhere. can rent it. It is so easy to find. Yeah. And it was one of the only films this year that was successful from Sundance sales. Did you know that? I did not, but I'm not surprised. So The Big Sick, I'm With You, it just wrecked me. There are two films that wrecked me in an embarrassing way. And you may not know this, but mom certainly knows this. That actually, Did you know this? Well, I don't know. I want to know what the other one is. The other film that wrecked me? Do you know? No. Is very similar. This It was the year prior, and it was Don't Think Twice. Oh, I didn't watch that. I heard it was really good. It is good. A lot of friends that liked it. Mike Birbiglia is amazing. Ira Glass was the producer on it. I don't know why, but full confession, both those films, normally the credits, you just, you know, you're a little teary and you sit there, and the entire credits, I just wept like a baby. Just what? sat there. Yes, I did. <laughs> I didn't. I mean, I, I teared up a little bit. I didn't cry. I didn't bawl though. Like I'm still trying to be self aware of why both those films wrecked me, but they did. I think it's because they're true stories. They're based on true stories, and they're funny but poignant. Yeah, and maybe that's the kind of films I enjoy and, and want to make. Mm-hmm. So there's something about it when somebody just knocks a home run on that kind of film. That it's personal, it's funny, but not cheesy. Yeah. It just, it wrecks me. Yeah, it is kind of a perfect movie. Like, there's nothing to really do different. I loved it. Yeah. The Big Sick was one of my favorite films of the year. Yeah. Go see it. Yes. This has been the Mason Minute, where Mason learns things about his father and hangs his head after. (laughs) Yeah. It's okay. All is forgiven. All is forgiven. Proud of you, son. Thank you. Who's inspiring you right now? Maybe now and maybe certainly John Williams, starting with Star Wars, which, by the way, have we ever talked about the the YouTube video of the final scene of Star Wars without John Williams score? No. uh, Oh, you haven't seen that? I have not. Uh, That's my gift to you after we end here. I'm going to send it to you. It's unbelievable because it's the end scene silent without that score. And you realize that score in the final sort of when they're getting their awards and, you know, the triumphant entry of Han Solo and Chewbacca and Luke without any score. I'm never surprised by the power of music in a film. In fact, uh, you know, and I got to say, if there are any filmmakers listening, it it is the biggest bang that you'll get for your buck uh, is putting your, putting your budget toward making your score sound like a, like a, like a movie because it can change everything, you know? Yeah. That is true. I've been on the receiving end of that and I think it pays off. It's not a it's not a place to skimp. And I think needle drop just the difference between needle drop and a composer. I was telling a friend, this guy Mayo that was staying here as he was working on his short film, and I was just telling him how amazing it is whenever he gets the opportunity to work with a composer because they 
graft it into your narrative. Whereas it's great. You fall in love with, you know, you put a Brian, everybody puts a Brian, you know, you know, score over their cool images and they fall in love with it. But once you actually design a, a soundscape and, and a composition that goes with a scene, you'll, you'll kind of never go back. I think. I think it's just so fun to just watch it evolve. And, and even one note can make a difference. I mean, it's just amazing, like how powerful, like the subtle changes can be in a, in a, in the, in the, in the score, how, how much of an impact that can have on the, on the, on the screen. So, um, yeah, I remember times where we'd take a few things out and it would just be perfect. We would kind of layer it up and then pull it back. And yeah, that's another thing, like the use of silence. That's super, super, uh, super powerful too, you know? Yeah. What you don't score <laughs> as yeah. well. Which it's is interesting. It's what you do score. Yeah. You have to kind of it that way. Yeah. And the other thing for anyone that is not working in film or doesn't understand your profession, the first thing we do is we sit down with the film without any score and talk about where score is going to go. And that's an incredibly important meeting. Yeah, it's fun to watch it without the music then with no temp tracks with nothing and then you're then you're really just talking about ideas and you also really see what you have to work work with and you you also are able to talk about what it needs to be and and do that in an in an in an kind of an abstract way without referencing like even like the 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 temp cues or anything like that but just just start with the scene and kind of let the sound grow organically from what what's on screen. Yeah. What what composers are inspiring you these days? Um, I'll probably be embarrassed by me saying, but I have I have this uh, writing partnership with Alessandro Cortini from uh, Nine Inch Nails, and we've been doing a bunch of stuff together. And he's uh, he's such an unorthodox composer that um, um, we've been working together for uh, a couple of years, and he. Uh, he's been kind of inspiring to me in, in that sense of his, because uh, uh, I started out as a very experimental composer. And then, you know, the movies that you do kind of dictate the, the, um, the, the scores that you write and stuff. But I, you know, working with him the last couple of years brought me back to sort of my roots of thinking in a way that is just, just completely serves the film and, and isn't beholden to any, you know, predisposed idea of the way that you would write the music or the instruments that you would use. That's great. Who was the Estonian that I asked you about recently? Oh, Arvo Part. Yeah, he's a big influence of mine. I, I love the the, the uh, minimalist, you know, kind of new classical composers. And I mean, that's really powerful music to me. Um, it's very simple, but I, I like the, the tension and release in it. And and there, there's something about it that just really I'm attracted to. You know, I, I, I'm trying to think who, who else. I mean, I'm kind of like the Borg when, when it comes to music. You know, I just kind of assimilate you know I, I like to listen to different things but i listen with a critical ear don't listen i mean i, I can listen for enjoyment but i i i'm an explorer you know and I, yeah. I like to sort of listen to to interesting things and and you know kind of i don't know be inspired that way yeah. there's certainly people like johnny greenwood you know i like I, I love the fact that he you know um He's dabbling in classical music, but he also, you know, writes for Radiohead and he also, you know, he works with strings, he works with modulars, he works with guitars, you know. Um, I mean, those are, those, that, that's kind of my palette also is, you know, you know, that, that sort of instrumentation also. Yeah, he's fantastic. <laughs> hey, since this, because of the glamping uh, side of things and the fact that we used to live at Green Acres and I talk often about retreat and unplugging you certainly are busy in the time that we've worked together you've become a father so how do you balance 
the life of a composer, family man, and, and all your other musical adventures, what do you do to unplug, to regroup, refresh yourself? I do magic as a hobby. <laughs> I love that. I, I wondered if you were going to, I didn't want it to be a leading question, but I wondered if magic tied into kind of the way that you restore. Tell me about that. Uh, you know, I just love it. I've loved it since I was a kid. My wife got me magic lessons at the magic castle for Christmas. Like I think now it's like almost five years ago and I took one six week course there and it's the only time I've ever been able to stick with anything, you know, on a schedule like that, because, you know, with our, you know, being in production, you know, you're always, you know, uh, reacting to, to, to your changes in your schedule. But I was just like, you know, this is just like two hours a night for six weeks. Um, you know, one night a week, I can do this. And I stuck to that and I just loved it. I went into the, into this room with a, a bunch of other magic nerds and, and, uh, it was like Hogwarts. It was just incredible. <laughs> That's so great. Yeah. And, uh, we, we learned, but you know, t not just tricks, but the history of magic. I mean, it's just, there's just so many things that I just love about it. And, uh, I just decided I wanted to take the next class and I took like the whole year of classes basically. And then I decided that I wanted to become a member of the, of the, magic. of the castle. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, it's the Academy of Magical Arts and the magic castle is sort of the clubhouse. And, um, so I took private lessons for like in the next three years. Cause I didn't want to be like, I, I, if I thought about like in terms of music, I didn't want to like know three chords and be able to get up in front of, front of, you know, people from my audition and, and, uh, and play those three chords, you know, I wanted to actually know how to do magic and know about the history and, and, you know, have some, have some skills and stuff. So I, I methodically sort of went about that. And then I don't know for anybody that doesn't know how you actually join, you, you actually, there's an interview process and then you um, have to audition in front of a group of judges and then, um, or a group of members, and then they sort of vote you into it because it's a private club. And not, not super easy to get into as I understand it. Now it used to be really hard to get in. They've sort of opened it up, you know, f f with the greater good of sort of, um, you know, wanting to perpetuate, um, the art form. And mm -hmm. so I, I won't, so it kind of is easier to, to get in now than it was say 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but, but they're not going to let me in with a, with a quick card trick. You have to really aspire to yeah. sort of want to be part of the art form. And, and, um, it's the only place like it in the world, actually, this, you know, club, yeah. club here in, uh, in LA, it's a, you, you know, the only way you can visit is, is to know a member, mm -hmm. which I do fortunately. Yes. And then I know you and we I want to go. to go. We have to go. Gotta get you out here. I know my daughter, when she heard that you had an in there, she's like, you and mom have to go and tell me all about it. Have you seen Delt, the film Delt yet? You're, you know your what? wife's in it, right? Or you're in I, it. Uh, I think she might be. Uh, she, they, we were at the castle when they were recording Richard, um, and uh, she was sitting at the table with him. So I actually haven't seen it yet. You need but, to. Uh, it's so I, well done. Oh, that's what I heard. I'm dying to see it. Yeah, the cinematographer that shot my documentary also shot that film, and then I'm friends with the guys that made it, and I think they did an incredible job. His name's Jake, and he's crazy talented. 
Oh, that's cool. I, I can't wait. I mean, I, he's, I'm a big fan of Richard Turner's for, for people that don't know he's, he's blind and he's one, he's a master card mechanic. I mean, he, he, um, the way that he does magic is he's just manipulating me and controlling the cards and he does it blind. And it's, it's incredible. It's incredible. Oh, they do such a good job of giving you a minute and seeing people react to that and just the narrative of his life and the way he approaches it and how passionate he is about the mechanics of it. And it's incredible. It's yeah. a must. I was see. watching him for 10 minutes before I realized he was blind. Really? Yeah. Wow. What films, I always ask people a film in the last year that rocked their world. Do you have a film that you've seen in the last year? Oh man, what have I seen that I really liked? Oh, um, Ex Machina. I mean, I, yeah. I love that. Tell me about I, that because I haven't seen it. Oh, you know, I, I've got a soft spot for sci-fi and and that just was just such a smart movie. I mean, I, I loved, loved that movie. That was, that was uh, uh, you know, that's a movie I would have loved to score, but uh, just a great movie. Great story. Have you seen Blade Runner yet? No, I haven't seen it yet. You need to see it. It's good. And a pretty interesting score as well. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I was I'm a big fan of um the original composer uh Johan Johansson mm-hmm. and uh, they were trying to give a nod in a big way. Oh, um you mean uh you mean to Vangelis or or mm-hmm. to um, to Vangelis. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah, Vangelis was the original um composer of uh, the original Blade Runner. Johan Johansson was actually scoring the remake right. and he got he left the project and Hans Zimmer took over. Oh, interesting. What's the story and, there? Um, I don't know the story, um, but um, Johan's a pretty experimental uh, composer, and he, um, you know, he did Oh Arrival. That's that's another movie. Mm. Rock. I, I would love to. to, to uh, yeah, I love that movie Arrival. So that's when I saw that Rock My World. In fact, um, his other film, the one about the um, about the drug cartels, that that was a fabulous movie, also. But Johan scored both those films, so um, yeah, very experimental composer, and he was sort of he left the project, and Hans Zimmer uh, took over. Interesting. It does not sound like a Hans Zimmer film. I think there was another guy that worked on it too, but I think it could have been a much different film with um, score. With uh, obviously, I haven't seen it yet, but just imagining what Johan would have done with it, because um, yeah, very interesting composer. Yeah, what. Um this is totally a, there's no good sort of shift here, <laughs> but I always do the section where I end the podcast with something tasty with my daughter who wants to be a chef. And today I asked her what she wanted her next thing to be. And she knew I was talking with you and she said, ask BC his favorite dessert and we'll try and make it. So what's a dessert that you like? Oh, my favorite dessert. That's funny. Uh, you know, I actually don't eat a lot of dessert. But if I was going to choose a dessert, I suppose it would be have some sort of like salted caramel thing. Mm. Or else I'd have to go old school and say bananas foster. But you got to bring the flame for that. Oh, let's do that. She'd love that. Bananas foster. Bananas foster it is because I get to be involved too and watch her do it. So. The last question I have for you is your favorite small farm animal that is not a donkey. I, I, I have to go with the little pigs. Yeah, that's what Richard Robichaud said too. Mm-hmm. Same thing. You know what's interesting with Richard is when I asked him the same question about uh, retreat and restoration, he took piano lessons in his 40s, just started it and kind of like the way you did with magic. He just dug into piano and that became kind of the way he – refreshes himself 
That's cool. I think that's important. You know, everybody, you know, you need to do the things that allow you to, you know, suit up and be the guy that you, you need to be, you know? Yeah. I think that's why the first thing we built at Green Acres was a skate ramp. But maybe that was a midlife crisis. Like maybe that was my Harley when I. That's a know. good one, though. I know it was a good. It was it was more original, at least. And I tried to relive. I, I told everyone it was for my son, but Kirsten was keen on letting people know it pretty much was for me. <laughs> I love that. I know it's not there anymore. It was in the film, so now it lives on in the film, but uh, no longer at Green Acres. That's a bummer, but it's it's even better that it's in the film and it lives on. I know it will live on and on like your score will live on and on. And uh, it was fantastic to work with you on the second film. And I hope that there are many films for you without me and many that we get to do together as well. What's the one that you just finished? Uh, I just finished a movie called uh, amateur. Um, it's a very cool movie about a, about a high school uh, basketball player that plays at a pro level and the, the drama that goes along with, with that and being kind of stuck in that high school system. Very cool. And that's a Netflix original. Am I right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It's going to premiere uh, on Netflix sometime next year, I think. And hopefully, I, I'm hoping that that premieres at Sundance this, this year. Oh, that would be uh, great. So we'll find out, find out in a couple of weeks. Oh, well, I hope that goes very well. BC, it's always Thanks. awesome to talk with you. Thanks for taking the time. It's my pleasure. Yeah, and I can't wait till we work together again. Get back to writing, man. I will. That's what that's what's next. The dust is settling on the film and I'm I'm getting back to writing. But I am gonna take a few weeks to just restore myself, retreat. <laughs> yes, as you as you as you should and celebrate too. Yeah. It's a it's a I, I, I love I love the movie and it was such a joy to watch it with you and, and we should celebrate, you know. Absolutely. Thanks so much. All right, take care, BC. You too. Bye bye. All right, see ya. I always get a little hungry towards the end of the podcast and like to find something tasty from my chef daughter, May Lee. And today, as BC suggested, we are going to burn some bananas. Okay, May Lee, what are we making today? Bananas flambe. Bananas flambe. Now, what's the difference between bananas flambe and bananas foster? Nothing. I don't think so. Okay, now, who are we calling? Mimi. Okay. Hi there. Hey, Dan. How are you? I'm great. Hey, is mom around? Sure. Hang on. Hi there. Hey, we're making something in the kitchen. Maylee has a question for you. Okay, little cook, what's your question, darling? Um, do you have the recipe for bananas flambe? I don't think I have the recipe, but do you want me to tell you how to do it? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so how many people are you going to feed? Um, just me, Dad, and Mason. Okay, I, you get one stick of butter... Okay, and then you put about uh, half a cup of brown sugar. Uh-huh. You have a skillet. What do you have in there? A stick of butter. Stick of butter. What are you putting in? Uh, half a cup of packed brown Packed sugar. brown sugar. What kind of brown sugar? I use light because I don't like brown sugar. Okay. Great. So light brown sugar. Both those are in there. Okay. And you heat that up in a skillet with the butter. Okay. And then you get bananas. How many bananas should we use? Three bananas. Okay. 
and you slice the bananas. You need to slice them about quarter of an inch because you want them to absorb all that sauce. Mm-hmm. Turn this on. Uh, sure. Okay, so bananas are perfectly cut. That's amazing. How do you do that? Side by side. For our listening audience, there are three bananas, all stacked, perfectly cut. Super impressive, if you ask me. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then you put it in the skillet, and you've, this is a timing thing. You've got to bring it to sort of a low boil. And then, do you have brandy? Uh, we have rum. That'll do it. Then you get, I'd say, about a shot glass full of, of rum, but you have to put it in the microwave. It has to be not hot, but warm. Okay, I think you got it perfect. How long should the rum? Uh, 30 seconds, no more. I'm just gonna do 20 seconds because three seconds makes it hot. Okay. And you get a match ready to light and you pour the rum in on top of all of the, the rest of the stuff and catch it on fire. All right, yeah. thanks. Thank you. You bet, love you. Yep. yep. It's vaporizing. Okay, are we ready? I'm gonna open the door. Go. All right, you have the lighter? Got it. Okay, walking outside. Pour it in first and light it. Stand back. Yep, stand back. Watch out. Yes, that's what we're talking about. I think you can mix it around a little bit. Look it, it's going. Oh yeah, look at that. Mix it around, mix it around. Yeah, we want it to burn off. Otherwise, this is a terribly uh, irresponsible dessert while mom's not here. I think it's good. Yep. I think we did it. Yay. All right, now what do we do? Now, you are going to scoop the ice cream. Okay. Okay, two scoops each? Yeah, maybe two and a half. Two and a half each. All right, what kind of ice cream are we, are we using? Uh, vanilla bean hagen dust. Nice. No product, please. Okay, explain what you're doing here. Taking a ladle, this big ladle. A big one? Yeah. And scooping on some bananas. There's one. All right, whose is that? Uh, Mason, you want it? All right, Mace, grab a spoon. Mmm. You can have it. What do you think? That's good. All right. The chef is tasting it. Mm. Okay. Is this mine? Yeah. Mmm. Maylee? Yeah. This is crazy tasty. Thanks. No Sama podcast is complete without a little tidbit of small farm animals. And today, I simply leave you with alpacas of instagram look it up alpacas of instagram you're welcome the sama podcast is produced by chris mann jeff carpenter and myself please subscribe share review and tell your friends about our show and tune in next week when you will hear you know when i was younger i had a pet pig oh funny story 